Welcome, everyone. Today is April 13, 2012. This is Christy Balsells. I'm the Executive Director of Mito Action and excited about our topic and our speaker today, uh, Dr. Mark Corson from Tufts Floating Hospital for Children um, Metabolism Service is joining us, and our topic today is interpreting labs, a crash course, if you will, for Mito patients. And we're not going to be talking about muscle biopsy and genetic sequencing like we have before. We're going to be talking about those labs that you get routinely, but that still don't necessarily make sense to a lot of patients. So Dr. Corson is an exceptional speaker for this because he actually travels around giving talks to educate medical students about mitochondrial disorders and metabolic diseases. And so he is um, well versed in being able to educate folks and um, also a, a clinician who has such a breadth of knowledge and experience that we're all really lucky to have him with us today. Welcome, Mark, and thank you for joining us. Thanks, Christy. Anything else you want to say about yourself, and then we'll go ahead and get started with the topic. Um, well, um, I guess uh, I, I have been following uh, patients with, with mitochondrial disease and, and mitochondrial dysfunction for um, a long time now, and I, I guess I should start by saying thank you uh, because you know much of this information um, was not and is not available in books um, yet. It's not published uh, in journals. It's really the patients who teach uh, by their by what they tell me and by their experiences. So um, I, I'm I'm. That you're you're the folks who um, have really taught me what I know. Um, what That's I'm, great, Dr. Corson. Let's go jump right into our topic then. Go ahead. Okay. So, so as Christy mentioned, I, what I want to talk about today are really um, the routine tests that um, are available um, in any laboratory in any emergency room, and then some of the more specialized metabolic tests that can increase um, suspicion about a mitochondrial disorder. Um, you know, a, a, as many of you probably already know, making it or, or, or con, um, confirming a diagnosis of mitochondrial disease is very difficult, um, at least at this point. Sure, if you identify a specific DNA abnormality, well, then you're lucky. But for the majority of patients, at least at this point in time, um, confirmation is um, rather elusive, and that's simply because of the state of the art uh, and science right now. And so what that means is um, uh, clinicians have to um, look at a variety of factors, including symptoms, including examination findings, including um, laboratory tests, biopsy results, and so on. Um, to um, raise or lower suspicion about a possible mitochondrial diagnosis. And so among those, again, are the, the biochemical tests that one would do. Um, in my experience, most children, not necessarily all, but most children who have a mitochondrial diagnosis show some biochemical abnormality. Some have a lot, some have a uh, few, and, and there are some who don't have any. Uh, maybe those only come out when, when somebody is sick. Um, adults, on the other hand, um, are often more biochemically stable. 
So they may not show the bio, uh, certain biochemical abnormalities like children might. And this is not unique to mitochondrial disease. One sees this also in some um, uh, other metabolic disorders as well. Um, and, uh, and sometimes the biochemical abnormalities, again, don't come out except when uh, the body is under significant physiologic stress. So, um, you know, having a, uh, an energy problem itself is a stress, and the body often tries to compensate as best it can, but then add something on top of that, like surgery or fever or infection, and the body has an extra energy demand, and under those circumstances, the, the chemical abnormality becomes more apparent. Um, the, the other thing I want to say about biochemical tests is um, the ones that I'm talking about do have a mitochondrial um, or, or might have a, a relationship with mitochondrial disease or, or mitochondria that are not working properly. But um, there are often um, other causes for abnormalities in all of these tests. Some of these uh, causes might be ordinary physiology. Um, so, for example, we all talk about um, or we all think about, um, you know, elevated lactic acid. It could be um, consistent with a mitochondrial diagnosis or, or makes a doctor particularly suspicious about a mitochondrial disorder. But, you know, the most common cause for an elevated lactate is just that the blood wasn't drawn in... Um, um, it carefully enough, or it was a difficult blood draw, regardless of how 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 the uh, uh, nurse or phlebotomist did. And then sometimes it could be there's a problem in lab processing. So the most common cause for an elevated lactate is not mitochondrial disease, but simply um, blood drawing or, or or lab processing a problem there. Um, if you take all those out, the most common cause for an elevated lactate is just a person who is dehydrated, um, who is not perfused well. So um, if um, you ever become so dehydrated that your uh, extremities become cold and perhaps discolored, dusky, because uh, not because of mitochondrial disease, but simply because of bad dehydration, the lactic acid might be elevated under those conditions. So again, it doesn't, that doesn't reflect mitochondrial disease, just a, a, a reminder that there are physiologic as well as artifact reasons why one can see um, elevations or abnormalities in these areas. So let's start by talking about some of the general tests that one can, that one can get um, and often say a, a pediatrician or a family physician or an internist might get if they're concerned about you because of the symptoms you're presenting with. So if one thinks about say, electrolytes, and that usually refers to, um, you know, sodium, potassium, chloride. Um, if you're ordering a metabolic profile, that would add uh, calcium, phosphorus, magnesium. There would be a bicarbonate level or a CO2 level in there as well. Um, so electrolytes, basic metabolic profile, are ver variations of the same type of um, uh, testing. Sometimes it'll be, you know, Chem 7, so there's seven chemistry tests, Chem 10, 10 chemistry tests, but these are all sort of almost synonyms of the same thing. And for the most part, 
um, the electrolytes in, in most patients are um, not affected unless something else is going on at the time, like dehydration. Um, certainly if someone has, as part of their mitochondrial disorder, has um, kidney problems, one might see um, abnormalities in the electrolytes. But perhaps the, 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 one, that, the one electrolyte that um, we focus on more is the bicarbonate level or the CO2 level. Now that the function of bicarbonate or CO2 is to um, neutralize acid in the blood and to keep the blood pH um, around 7.4, so not too acidic, not too basic, but um, what, the, you know, what the body is used to. And um, what we sometimes find is that the bicarb level is low, and that can occur for two reasons. Either um, the kidney is not doing its job of reabsorbing bicarb that it sees coming to it, in which case the bicarb is lost into the urine, um, and that can happen with mitochondrial kidney disease, or the bicarb can be low because the, um, say, elevated acid in the blood, say lactic acid, is, is acidic. And so the body and blood tries to neutralize that by, by uh, using bicarb. And in the process, the bicarb level drops because it's being used to neutralize the acid. So there are two possible reasons that the bicarb level can be low. And one way of differentiating those two is something called an anion gap, which if you ever looked at lab results, often follow the list of electrolytes on the, on the page. And the anion gap, anion spelled A-N-I-O-N, um, anion looks at, um, um, or, or, or um, physicians have long known that if you look at the, the most common electrolytes, say sodium, potassium, chloride, and bicarbonate, that there's a uh, numerical relationship between the two. And uh, that relationship is maintained if the bicarbonate is lost in, by the kidney, for example. But if the bicarbonate is being used to neutralize acid, the anion gap becomes abnormal that relationship, that numerical relationship is not maintained and the anion gap rises. And so that's one way that clinicians can use to differentiate why the bicarbonate is low. Um, and sometimes the bicarbonate is not low except when patients are acutely ill or when there's some um, stressor. Um, now the other thing about um, electrolytes, and I've sort of alluded to this already, is if the kidney is affected by mitochondrial disease, you might find that the electrolytes are abnormal. Also, something else called the blood urea nitrogen, or BUN, um, as well as the creatinine level that you can get in the blood uh, testing, um, those might also be thrown off. And so um, a, a quick way, an easy way of looking at kidney function um, is to just look at the electrolytes and BUN, the blood urea nitrogen, and creatinine together. And so that's a way of assessing kidney disease, whether it's mitochondrial or otherwise. Um, another test that's very readily available are liver function tests. And there's a lot of them. Um, 
there is, well, the old name was SGOT. Now it's called AST. Uh, another one is SGPT, the way it used to be called. Now it's called ALT. And those are acronyms for longer names. ALT, for example, is, stands for alanine aminotransferase, but most people will call it ALT. Um, there is bilirubin, which looks at a different aspect of liver function. There is alkaline phosphatase, which looks at a different aspect of liver function. There is prothrombin time, or PT, INR, uh, and partial thromboplastin time, or PTT, which looks at a different aspect of liver function, namely um, how good the liver is about producing clotting factors. So, um, but perhaps the most common manifestation of liver disease in mitochondrial patients is um, the most common manifestation is uh, problems with the AST, the ALT, and perhaps the bilirubin. And uh, again, if there are abnormalities there, um, you know, there's a long differential diagnosis or a list of causes for elevated uh, liver functions. Um, but anybody, anybody who's thinking mitochondrial disease will want to look just to see whether or not the liver uh, is one of the systems that's involved. Uh, another test that looks at muscle involvement um, is, is uh, creatine kinase, or CK. And this is a muscle enzyme, an enzyme that's normally found in the muscle, and some leaks out and gets around in the blood. And in some cases, by no means all cases of mitochondrial myopathy, but in some cases, the muscle damages more easily, and some of the CK leaks out of the muscle and raises levels in the blood. And um, this is oftentimes um, um, silent. In other words, a person can run around with an elevated CK level. Let's say, you know, the, the, the normal ranges vary. Say um, normal CK goes up to 130 or 200 or 250, depending on the lab. And a person can run around with levels of 500 or 1,000, and you'll never know it. But if those levels climb uh, much higher, and in some cases of mitochondrial disease it does, where levels are 30,000 or 50,000, especially following uh, strenuous exercise, then what that signifies is the muscle is um, significantly damaged, and there's so much CK leaking out of the muscle that uh, along with the CK, you have myoglobin or muscle protein leaking out. That myoglobin uh, pours out through the kidney into the urine and turns the urine red or brown, and it may suggest almost a, a bloody urine, except you'll never find red cells if you look at the urine under a microscope. It will, it, it will actually, if you dipstick it, if you take a urinalysis stick and dipstick it, it'll show blood. But when they look under a microscope, they won't see any red cells, They'll, uh, which indicates that it's not blood that's turning the, um, the dipstick positive it's muscle protein or myoglobin. Now that's dangerous because myoglobin can uh, block up the kidneys and cause kidney failure. So um, if you ever see your urine turn not dark yellow, which is 
just a dehydrated urine or, or a concentrated urine. Uh, but if you ever see it turn like a Coca-Cola uh, brown uh, or what seems to be blood, then um, that can be a, that's a concern. Um, but again, that's a screening test to see um, if muscle is involved. Again, you can have muscle without the CK level being elevated, but that's one thing to look at. Just like the liver function test, look at the liver, the electrolytes, BUN and creatinine, look at the kidney. So those are some of the general tests that one might see that one can do easily in a doctor's office in an emergency room. What I want to talk about now are some of the more metabolic-specific tests. Um, but again, you can see abnormalities here also with um, sometimes with artifact, in other words, the problem with the blood drawing, or again, for physiologic reasons. What the, perhaps the most common uh, test that people talk about with mitochondrial disease is lactate or lactic acid. Now, this has nothing to do with lactose, which is uh, milk sugar. So the two are not related at all. Um, and normally, lactic acid, um, um, we all have some lactic acid running around in our blood or lactate running around in our blood. Um, the normal values differ depending on which laboratory you use. So um, where millimoles per liter are the nor is the norm, uh, is, is the, um, the units, the laboratory units that people are using, then the normal range for lactate is 0 0.5 to, say, 2 or 2.2. Whereas if you're using milligrams per deciliter, which is how some laboratories report out the abnormality, um, the, the range can be 10 to 25. So like almost um, 10 times what the values are in millimoles per liter. So to know whether it's elevated or normal, you have to know what units you're talking about. But um, lactate, again, as I mentioned, the most common cause for an elevated lactate is simply that the specimen was not obtained well. And in fact, some clinics don't even use don't even trust lactic acid levels, especially if they come from children or babies, because the risk of some problem in getting the blood, it's a difficult stick, a lot of squeezing, a lot of slow blood draw, um, are so high that people don't even bother looking at the lactate. Um, related to lactate is pyruvate. Now, lactate and pyruvate are, are, are sibling compounds, uh, molecules. They are one step away from each other um, in the uh, energy pathway. And um, pyruvate is, uh, can be even more finicky than lactate. And if, you're, if it's not drawn in a special way using a special tube, um, frequently the pyruvate level can be um, not reliable. And um, many um, more people um, even more than people don't trust lactates, um, they don't trust pyruvates because they don't know how the level was drawn. And that's important um, because pyruvate, the relationship of pyruvate and lactate are important because um, you might find in your reading that people talk about a lactate to pyruvate ratio. In other words, how high is the lactate relative to pyruvate? In some disorders, like pyruvate dehydrogenase deficiency, lactate and pyruvate both rise 
and that relationship, that ratio, doesn't change uh, uh, depending on whether the levels are high or low. But in some disorders, like defects in complex one or pyruvate carboxylase deficiency, the lactate to pyruvate ratio rises, meaning lactate rises and pyruvate does not rise or does not rise as much. And so if you, can, if you get accurate levels of the two, then um, that can be a little bit helpful in um, uh, considering a specific diagnosis. But um, it is not entirely reliable. Uh, in other words, um, I've had many patients who have had um, a normal ratio, sorry, an elevated lactate and pyruvate where there was a normal ratio and the levels were trusted and I thought I was dealing with a case of pyruvate dehydrogenase deficiency, and it didn't turn out to be that. It turned out to be Milos syndrome. And in another case, it turned out to be NARP syndrome, other mitochondrial disorders. So um, they suggest a possible diagnosis, but um, are not uh, specific for that. However, they do suggest a, um, that there's still a mitochondrial problem. Now, um, the other, the other thing about the, the thing about lactate is, um, you know, we all produce lactate in our cells. If you run very, very quickly, if anybody runs, say the Boston Marathon is coming up next Monday, and so you're going to have a lot of people, tens of thousands of people running in that marathon. If you measured their lactic acid during or after the marathon, their lactic acid would be elevated. And if normal range is 0.5 to 2 or 2.2, you'll find patients, you'll find runners with levels of 4, 6, 8 levels. So, you know, two or three times elevated above normal. And that's normal because the muscles are producing lactate. And that's often what gives the heaviness or the discomfort that's in muscles with exercise. Um, but that lactate is generally um, utilized or or cleared fairly fairly quickly, um, but um, but lactate is is produced in every cell of our body with one exception, and those are the red cells. Red cells don't have mitochondria, um, so they only generate ATP or energy using the process of glycolysis, uh, which does not require a mitochondrion. So if um, so if you're having a blood draw where some of the blood cells get broke, break open, then those red cells are filled with lactate, and that's what often raises or causes a, um, a problem with um, uh, elevated lact uh, lactate levels. So um, that's one issue uh, in terms of using blood to measure lactate. In some cases, especially when there are neurologic features, um, so a person has neurologic symptoms, um, getting a spinal fluid specimen from a spinal tap can be helpful because um, there are normal ranges for lactate and pyruvate there as well. And if the spinal tap is done well and, and, and the clinician is lucky, there is no blood in the sample. So if you have lactate and pyruvate um, uh, measurements from spinal fluid that is not contaminated with blood, that's often a more reliable specimen.
So, um, so lactate and pyruvate, if it's consistently elevated, if it's reliable, um, can point you towards a mitochondrial diagnosis. But if your lactate or pyruvate are normal, it doesn't rule out a mitochondrial diagnosis. Some patients, the blood level is normal, but the spinal fluid levels are elevated, again, in patients who have neurologic or developmental uh, symptoms. Another finicky test, like the lactate, is ammonia. Now, ammonia is something we all carry around in our body. It's a, it's a breakdown uh, product uh, from, from routine protein metabolism. So um, if you and I eat too much fat or sugar, we store the extra. But if we eat too much protein, our body does not store the extra. It only uses what it needs. And the extra gets broken down into ammonia. And that ammonia is very toxic to the brain. And so we have a way of uh, getting rid of ammonia and converting it to a less toxic form called urea. That urea is the U, the letter U, in BUN, or blood urea nitrogen. Um, so um, ammonia is converted by the urea cycle to urea, which is measured as BUN. And, um, <clears throat> excuse me, um, the, the first half of the urea cycle is found in the mitochondrion. So if, um, for, uh, if a person with mitochondrial disease um, if there's a lot of biochemical abnormalities in the mitochondrion, it creates an abnormal biochemical environment, it often throws off the normal functioning of other chemical pathways that happen to be located in the mitochondrion. And the first half of the urea cycle is found in the mitochondrion. So some patients where they have a lot of biochemical abnormalities will show elevated levels of ammonia. But again, like lactate, the most common cause for an elevated ammonia is just a bad blood draw. And um, sometimes we'll see levels twice the upper limit of normal, um, again, from, from levels that are not uh, drawn well or they haven't been easy blood draws. So um, have to be very careful about ammonia. If, if a person has a central line or uh, an indwelling IV in place, Sometimes it's better to get these um, specimens that way as opposed to with a routine phlebotomy or, or blood stick. Now, so if lactate is a helpful molecule, how else can you, but, but it's not, it, but it can be an unreliable test, how else can we figure out whether a person has a high lactate level? Well, one way to look at that is to look at the amino acids. Amino acids are basically building blocks of protein. Um, before protein gets, uh, when protein is being broken down, it gets broken down into amino acids, and then the amino acids get broken down into nitrogen, which becomes ammonia. So um, amino acids are normal constituents of our blood and urine and spinal fluid, actually. And one of those amino acids is called alanine, A-L-A-N-I-N-E, alanine. And it is directly related to pyruvate and lactate. Now, um, if lactate and pyruvate are elevated, the alanine is also elevated. Now, the neat thing about this piece of information is 
if your lactate is elevated because of a, a bad blood draw, the alanine won't be elevated. The alanine is generally only elevated if the lactate or pyruvate has been elevated uh, for a while. And so that's, in, that's useful to know. If amino acids show an elevated alanine with an, and there's an elevated lactate, you can um, uh, be fairly sure that that, lact that lactate, uh, or at least part of that lactate elevation, is real and is believable. The other thing is, if your lactate level is consistently over 4 or 4.5, where the normal range goes up to 2 or 2.2, that lactate will spill over from the blood into the urine. And if you get a urine sample for organic acids, the lactate will be elevated, whereas normally lactate is not elevated in the urine. So these, the amino acids looking at alanine and the urine organic acids looking to see whether lactate or pyruvate are present, um, if those can be alternative ways of determining whether a person's lactic acid uh, is truly elevated. However, you know how I talked about before about a lactate to pyruvate ratio. Um, lactate to pyruvate ratios um, you can only get by measuring lactate and pyruvate directly, not by looking at the, uh, the alanine or the urine organic acids. By the way, I should tell you, yes, the lactate to pyruvate ratio is useful, but in some laboratories, the lactate is measured using same, uh, using units millimoles per liter, but the pyruvate is, you, is measured using units milligrams per deciliter in the same laboratory. Very confusing because you can only um, uh, measure the lactate to, or calculate the lactate to pyruvate ratio if both molecules are in the same units. So um, you have to have your doctor just make sure the, unit, uh, the, 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 the levels are reliable and in the same units before you calculate a ratio. Um, so we spoke a little bit the, about the organic acids in terms of lactate. The organic acids are actually an incredibly useful um, snapshot of what's going on in energy metabolism in the body, not just energy metabolism, in, in, in protein metabolism um, as well as carbohydrate metabolism. Um, it, it basically... The organic acids are, uh, or, or the urine collects all the chemicals the body does not want or does not need. And if things are present in excess, they spill out into the urine. So if you're going to find unusual chemicals that are not usually found in the body, look for them in the urine. And so um, in patients with mitochondrial disease, some, but not all, will show elevations not only of lactate, but of, um, of uh, chemicals that are not being uh, processed properly through that final energy pathway called the Krebs cycle uh, or electron transport chain. And some of those molecules from the Krebs cycle will spill out and you'll see elevated levels of 2-ketoglutarate or fumarate or malate or um, a a any one of those. And that can be also indicative that there is something wrong in energy metabolism, although it's not specific for a particular disorder. In fact, none of the tests we're talking about now are specific are, uh, for a particular disorder. They just indicate that there's something wrong in energy metabolism. Uh, another test that has come, on the, um, uh, come into use a little bit more recently 
are the acylcarnitines. Now, if there's some chemical accumulating in the body, um, the chemicals usually don't run around or um, uh, by themselves. They attach themselves to things. So some of them will attach themselves to one amino acid called glycine. And when you see glycine attaching to something, it's called an acylglycine. And there are many, there are many different types of acylglycines. But um, in some cases, those chemicals have an affinity for and bind to something called carnitine, which you might be familiar with because um, often patients are treated with carnitine. And carnitine is a natural vitamin-like molecule in the body. And carnitine can float around by itself but uh, it's sort of in the free state uh, because it's not bound to anything, so it's free. But sometimes it'll bind to chemicals, and those are called acylcarnitine. So uh, one could obtain an acylcarnitine profile and see what is binding to carnitine. Now, most carnitine is present in the free state, and only a little bit is bound. If you're in a situation where you're bound carnitine is much higher than your free carnitine, it suggests there truly is something unusual binding to carnitine, causing a, a raised level of bound or, or um, esterified acylcarnitines. Um, the acylcarnitines uh, can be helpful because um, it also gives us a, a, a view of mitochondrial function. Remember how I said before that the first half of the urea cycle is found in the mitochondrion? So, and if you have a lot of mitochondrial dysfunction, you might have some elevated ammonia levels that are trying to be processed through that urea cycle. Well, when fat is metabolized in the body, in the cells, it is metabolized inside the mitochondrion. So if your... Um, so if your mitochondria are very compromised, they're not functioning well, uh, or there's some abnormal biochemical environment in the mitochondrion, often the breakdown of fat, also called the oxidation of fat, uh, can be disrupted. Um, and so you might find abnormalities in tests that look at fat, fatty acid oxidation or the breakdown of fat in the cell. And that's what the acylcarnitine test does. It looks for problems in fatty acid oxidation. So that can be an indicator, again, that there's something going on wrong in the, uh, in the mitochondrion. Not specific, but um, something sort of going on wrong. Now, um, you can have abnormalities in the acylcarnitines in patients who have problems in their fatty acid oxidation, but their mitochondria are, the, are otherwise doing fine. Uh, patients who are fasting for a long time um, and they're starting to break down fat to use it as a source of energy, which is what we all do when we're fasting for a long time, you may also see some abnormalities in the acylcarnitine. So an acylcarnitine abnormality, like everything else I mentioned today, can have a mitochondrial significance but can also have a normal physiologic significance, and that needs to be interpreted in light of the situation What's going on at the time? Are you fasting? Have you just eaten? Are you sick? Are you well? And so on. Um, I'll mention one more test that um, some people measure, and that's the coenzyme Q10 test, which is one uh, way of looking at one of the molecules that transfers 
high energy electrons within the final energy pathway known as the electron transport chain. Now, coenzyme Q10 deficiency is one cause of mitochondrial disease and is associated with very low levels. The problem is with measuring blood levels is it is also a finicky test. And so coenzyme Q10 levels can be altered by the way the specimen is handled. And so a lot of people don't trust coenzyme Q10 levels in blood. They find that what's a little more reliable are the coenzyme Q10 levels in white blood cells, which is less finicky. And some people won't even use that because, again, they may not be representative of what's going on elsewhere in the body. To make a diagnosis of coenzyme Q10 deficiency, often people look at the coenzyme Q10 levels in muscle, which are more reliable and are obtained through biopsy. So that is not uh, coenzyme Q10 levels like lactate, ammonia are a little bit um, uh, at risk, uh, are risky in terms of reliability. So those are sort of a, a, um, an overview of some of the general tests, some of the metabolic tests that one looks at to raise or lower suspicion about mitochondrial disease. And then uh, I'll just put in a, 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 just a minute to say that um, in patients that I follow with mitochondrial disease, um, I will order some of these tests periodically, every year, every two years, just to check in and see what their mitochondrial uh, status is. Um, but I also look at certain organs that are at risk for becoming involved in mitochondrial disease. So I will always look at a CK level, and I will always do some of the liver function tests and the kidney function tests just to kind of take a look at them. Um, but the other one that I will look at also is the thyroid um, because the thyroid is an organ that becomes dysfunctional or that can become dysfunctional um, and which can add to fatigue and add to muscle symptoms um, and is, is correctable by thyroid supplements. So I'll often look at a TSH, thyroid stimulating hormone, TSH, and a free T4 level. Um, that combination is a good, quick indicator of most causes of thyroid, uh, low-functioning uh, thyroid. Um, and again, that's, those are, that's something I look at from time to time. So I think I'll, I'll finish there and perhaps take questions. Perfect. Thank you so much, uh, Mark. And I think, you know, just the breakdown of all of the different tests and understanding the values is so helpful, and we'll get this in writing also so that then it will be a wonderful reference because it can be confusing when you're a patient and you see those printouts and it says, you know, it has a star next to it, it says abnormal, and you just don't know whether that's a cause for concern or to be expected or something that may not even be real, <laughs> as you were mentioning also. Um, so let's definitely open up for some questions. So I'm going to unmute the lines for everyone now. We'll just take turns uh, asking questions. You can introduce yourself briefly, and then we'll open the lines for questions. So, All right, all so right. who would like Hi. to ask the first question? Go ahead. Hi, I would like to ask a question to Dr. Corson. Go ahead. This is Lee Everonsky, and I'm calling from uh, Atlanta, Georgia. I have a child who has been diagnosed with a primary mitochondrial disease with Dr. Schaffner. 
with an empty DNA mutation. So um, my question is, when Dr. Schaffner runs the test, my son's uh, test result comes back low for carbon dioxide, and I wonder if Dr. Corson could tell me a little bit about that. Okay, so carbon dioxide is CO2. Uh-huh. Some places will report it out as a bicarbonate level. And okay. normal levels are, say, above 20. 20, yes. Usually 20 to 25 or 21 to 25. His is about 17, 18, sometimes 18, sometimes 17, most of the time 17. All right. So um, there are two reasons for a bicarb level to be low. Um, and, again, um, the, the two big reasons that I worry about, there, there are actually there are many more reasons. Like, for example, if you have um, an infant, a young infant, their kidneys don't absorb bicarbonate or CO2 well, and so they tend to leak bicarbonate into the urine, and so their levels can normally run a little bit lower than others. And it could be in the range of 17, 18. But if there's a mitochondrial problem, um, either the bicarbonate is, uh, is being used to neutralize acid, like lactic acid, and that's why the bicarbonate is running low, um, or that the kidneys are involved and are leaking bicarbonate into the urine and not holding on to it, um, both, again, result in a lower bicarbonate. Sometimes the anion gap that's listed on the results sheet can help tell you the difference. If the anion gap is elevated, then it suggests that there is some other... Um, molecule like lactate that is consuming the bicarb. If the anion gap is normal, it suggests that the bicarb is leaking. And a level of 17 and 18 is rather borderline and not a particular problem. However, if it falls too much lower than that, it can really interfere with growth. Uh, the body does not grow well in, an acid, in a low bicarbonate environment. The other thing is, below a level of 14, um, the, uh, um, that's called acidosis. So people use the term lactic acidosis, metabolic acidosis. Um, most of the time that those terms are used, it's not truly an acidosis. You only have an acidosis if the acid level is high enough or the bicarb low enough that it alters the pH significantly or drops the bicarb level or CO2 level below 14 or 13. Mm -hmm. If it's not quite that low, then we call it anemia. But, um, so it's a milder form. So it's just like a watch and see kind of things. That's, that's what we do. We are patients of Dr. Schaffner. We check Correct. his blood all the time to see where it goes. Okay, all right, thank you for and if, and if And sometimes, uh, if, if it doesn't show, if, it's, it's trend, if it tends to drop lower than that, what often what clinicians will do will give supplemental bicarbonate um, as a regular medicine to keep the level closer to 20. Okay. So uh, if in case he's sick, he gets sick all the time, would that make it even worse, go lower? Can I, can I ask him to be tested when he's sick to see the levels of it? Um, uh, that 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 could that would be a concern um, if levels are running 17 or 18 when well. This is when he's healthy. 17, yes. 18 when he is very healthy. Now, I have not checked when he's very sick. Well, it might. It is conceivable it might drop lower at that time. 
And what is a supplement? Supplement of bicarbonate? Is that what it is? Yes. Okay. Thank you, Dr. Corson. I really so much appreciate it. You're welcome. All right. We have a question that came in through email, and Dr. Corson, this this question is about taking the mito cocktail and the effect <laughs> on labs, which I think is a great question. You know, if um, let's break this down. One part of that question might be. To what degree does the mitococktail affect lab results? And then the next question would be, to what length of time can have an impact? You know, so if you're on the cocktail for a couple months, does it make a difference? And if you're off for a couple months, does it take a different make a difference in terms of normalizing what accurate levels might be? Well, that's a, that's a very difficult question, and, and you know, we don't have, I don't know that we have um, those kind of data. Uh, certainly in enough patients to know um, for sure what does go on. You know, um, the, the big problem with the vitamin therapies is, um, is that we don't have a large series of patients who are treated with these one at a time to find out um, whether or not they're beneficial and how beneficial they are. And in part, because there's so many different types of mitochondrial disease, it may it, it, these might show an, um, a benefit in some, but not in all, and 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 we have difficulty classifying mitochondrial disease right now. So, um, let's take out. Um, I'll mention L-carnitine because many people take L-carnitine. In some, it's it's considered part of their cocktail. Um, the carnitine, levocarnitine, or L-carnitine, or carnitor. Um, can certainly raise your carnitine levels. And, and I, must, I should say, actually, the most common reason for carnitine levels to be low um, that I found in mitochondrial disease is not because of a biochemical abnormality, but because of problems with eating. Um, you, get carnitor, you get carnitine from red meat, milk, and dairy products. And if intake is poor, because people, you get um, you have you get tired chewing, or because mm -hmm. your stomach isn't working well, or because reflux is bad and intake is poor, um, 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 then it's not uncommon to find lower carnitine levels on purely on a nutritional basis, and those will respond. Uh, they have nothing necessarily to do with the mitochondrial disease, um, and they will respond to a carnitine supplement. Um, as far as the other uh, cocktail vitamins, the coenzyme Q10 or ubiquinol, the um, vitamin E, the vitamin C, the alpha lipoic acid, the creatine, um, I, I, don't, I don't see a direct relationship I, um, between the vitamin use and between laboratory um, results. So um, I look much more for um, Symptomatic improvement, especially independent observers who um, who are a step away from the patient, like like a teacher or somebody else who doesn't know about uh, who doesn't know what's going on, but sees that there's a distinct improvement in the child functioning. And Dr. Corson, just to segue from that, um, you know, sometimes people are concerned about getting lab levels before they um, start supplements or, you know, so forth. Would you just speak about what your perception of the general recommendation is about well, um, measuring, yeah. you know, before, uh-huh? 
Well, before starting Carnotaur, I will get an L-carnitine level because I just want to know what my baseline is. Um, if for those uh, clinics that measure coenzyme Q10, say in white cells, then um, I will get. Then I would suggest getting a coenzyme Q10 level before supplementation. Uh, for patients who are going to have a muscle biopsy, I would not take coenzyme Q10 within the couple of months before the biopsy, because if you're going to get a muscle biopsy for coenzyme Q10, you want to make sure you find out what. It, what the level was in, in the untreated state, so that you don't have a, um, so so you don't uh, mask the issue. As far as the others, um, I don't um, I don't get levels um, of vitamin E or vitamin C um, or uh, alpha lipoic. There's no there are no levels of alpha lipoic acid, but for the general cocktail ingredients, I generally don't get. Um, levels or labs beforehand because, again, I haven't really seen um, a consistent correlation between supplements and laboratory values, general laboratory values. Great. Great question. Uh, all right. Who can ask the next question? I have a question for um, for the doctor. Go ahead. Um, my son was diagnosed with via newborn screen uh, for GA2, and I was actually just looking at some of his organic acid results um, over the past couple of days, and this was last year. But um, his levels in the organic acid for 2-oxoglutarate, I think I'm pronouncing that correctly, yes. are um, significantly uh, elevated with four pluses. Um, and everything else is just a trace from that organic um, GCMS. So I just didn't know what that specific analyte has to do, you know, with that panel. Is um, so? Is your son an, an, uh, a young infant? Yeah, he's he's 14 months now. But when this was taken, he was a month old. Not quite a month old. All right. So this um, welcome to the complexity of laboratory intervention. <laughs> um, uh, in infants. Um, one commonly sees elevated levels of 2-oxoglutarate, also known as 2-ketoglutarate. And so um, I don't know whether that's a simple, normal elevation for an infant, right. whether that's beyond what's acceptable for an infant. Sometimes the laboratory won't recognize that this is a, a young infant, um, in which case it could be an indicator that the Krebs cycle um, one component of the final energy pathway in the mitochondrion isn't functioning well, and and that's an indicator of that. Okay. Yeah, because with that and then um, the actual blood work, that's what was consistent with GA2. Um, we, don't, we don't generally look, well, I guess one could see that, um, although lots of other metabolites that, are, that need to be seen to confirm the diagnosis. Okay. If the 2-ketoglutarate is... Um, a function of, if the elevation is a function of the age, that is, it was obtained when he was a month old, if you got another specimen more recently and that 2-ketoglutarate level is now much more normal, mm -hmm. I would say that much of that elevation was due to an age phenomenon and not due to any disorder. Gotcha. So that was the only one. I mean, the L-carnitine panel that was done, um, there's quite a bit of that's raised there when it was taken um, 
are confirmed after newborn screen. That's but, more significant, uh, and that, that's the more important um, uh, test for GA2. Correct. Correct. Okay. Yeah, because his L-carnitine, the or the, was it the alkyl carnitine? Yeah. Like, yes. Yeah, that was like 44 or something. Yeah, I think that's what it was. But, so it just goes to show how complex this actually can yeah. can become when you start to break down into into these different degrees. And you right. know, um, uh, Dr. Corson, being a metabolic physician, also, you know, I think that that can have an impact also on. Sometimes the interpretation can vary um, based on the level of experience of the physician who's looking at the labs because if you have a neurologist who's looking at that who doesn't have a lot of metabolic um, interpretation, then they don't have that same experience that, say, like Dr. Corson would, right. you know, looking at the metabolic labs. So. I, just, like, I just wondered what that analyte was, being that it was so... Um, so much more significantly raised than the rest, you know, what that analyte itself might have had to do with, um, I guess, the grand picture. But. Right. So let's take our next question. Who can introduce I have, if I can. <laughs> um, yes. Both of my boys have been diagnosed with ketotic hypoglycemia, and we have gotten their labs during crisis, and what they show is pretty much just straightforward what anybody would be in during ketosis, elevated dicarboxylates, lots of ketones, high anion gap, um, but nothing else. They just seem to get there after 6 to 12 hours. Is that indicative of um, MITO, or is that almost proving it the other way? Since we have hypoglycemia without any mitochondrial dysfunction showing up anywhere, but they seem to not handle fasting at all, where would you? Perhaps the most common cause of hypoglycemia in patients above the age of 1 and below the age of 7 or 8 is ketotic hypoglycemia, which means, um, um, which means the blood sugar drops for whatever reason, and the, the body has mounted uh, or started producing ketones for the body to use as an alternate source of fuel for the brain and for other tissues, which is a normal physiologic response. It's a duration problem, but it is not a mitochondrial problem. Okay. Um, and, and the good thing about ketotic hypoglycemia is beyond the age of six, seven, eight years, um, patients generally grow out of it. Well, if it, is it odd that both of my boys just have two sons with the same issue where they can't, you know, five hours into this, we're still in ketones of like 3.9 as our blood level, but we can't really see any fault cycles. Is that... But you don't see any what? We don't see when you do all the metabolic workup, nothing shows up. But it's that like five. It's very odd to have a ketone level of 3.9 after a 10-hour fast. Um, yes, there are there are um, rare disorders of metabolism where the body makes ketones, but it has difficulty utilizing those ketones, and so the ketones tend to accumulate and they uh, tend to stick around for a long time. And um, there's a there's a different test. Uh, for ketone utilization disorders, uh, but those are not mitochondrial disorders. Okay, that's good to know. Thank you. You're welcome. I have a question. Dr. Corson, do you have time for a couple more questions? Sure. Okay, great. Go ahead. The person who is about to jump in, go ahead. Okay. Uh, my name is Cheryl. I'm from Atlanta. My daughter is Kennedy. For the last year, we've had issues with severely critically low potassium levels, which indicate, I mean, which causes her to have like probably 30 seizures in a day. 
She's not able to tolerate the potassium supplement for long. We supplement the potassium with the chloride, potassium chloride. It'll come back up, fails for a couple of months, and then before you know it, we're back in the ER. We've done the urinalysis, and they say that it's not the kidneys. Um, so I didn't know if you could speak on that a little bit. Well, um, is, is your child, um, uh, does your child, do you know what your child's CO2 or bicarbonate levels are? Uh, should, I don't. We just got out of the emergency room, but they did tell me that the bicarbonate, I think it was low, she was considered acidotic. Yes, because, you know, um, um, I'm thinking that um, if, let me think, let me think, if I go low. Because, uh, you know, um, no, I think I, I no, I, I confused it. It's not going to be a low bike. It's not, <coughs> let's leave that out. Login incorrect. Please enter extension and pound sign. Mark, keep talking. I'll put everybody on mute while you answer the question. Keep going. Please oh, enter extension and pound sign. All right. Mark, keep going. I'm just going to have everybody on mute so you can answer the question. It sounds like somebody put us on hold, so keep okay. going. <laughs> All right, so um, I'm not exactly sure. I mean, the most common reason to have a low potassium is going to be leakage of the um, leakage of potassium through the kidney. If if they measured urine potassium and found that there is no potassium um, leaking from the kidney by looking at urine potassium levels, then the other thing I guess I would look at is could it be some sort of kidney hormone problem um, or steroid hormone problem that is resulting in low potassium levels. Um, that's one thing I would consider. Um, I would also consider um, whether, uh, just make sure the bicarbonate levels are normal. Um, is there a problem with diarrhea or a problem with vomiting? Oh, Mark, hang on. She's... Um... She's on mute. Hold on. Can, can you answer that question, Cheryl? Yes. yes. Can you hear me? Yeah, we're yes. just getting some feedback. Go ahead. Oh, okay. Sorry. Um, yes, there is a problem with vomiting. Um, well, I'm, I, I'm wondering whether that's, I mean, that would throw off the chloride levels. It would throw off the, the um, there is a problem with vomiting. And is the so is the bicarbonate level low or high? Um, I might have got it backwards. <laughs> I, I do know that they did tell me about the bicarbonate. I don't have the labs in front of me. Um, it was, uh, I thought they said her acid alkaline base was off. Is, is that the same thing? Or? Yeah. If a patient, it, the thing is with vomiting, uh, you're vomiting up acid. And so, you're vom so what happens is um, your red cells will see that your blood is, uh, not not acidic enough. It needs to be, you know, it needs to be part acidic and part basic, um, and it needs to be um, a little bit more acidic. So hydrogen positive hydrogen ions have to leave the red cells to go into the blood to maintain neutrality, electrical neutrality. Potassium will then go into the red cells and leave the blood, and, and so it looks like low potassium levels. 
So it could, I mean, if the vomiting is significant, and it could be resulting in a low potassium level. So, so I guess the things I would check are kidney hormones, um, and I would check to see whether the vomiting is throwing off your child's electrolytes. Okay. Thank, Thank you. you very much. All right. Uh, let's have one more question. Go I ahead. I have a question. Mr. Okay, go ahead, Monsi. I hear your voice. Go ahead, and then we'll try to squeeze in that other one, too, okay? <laughs> Dr. Carson, first of all, thank you. That what you said was so lucid. It just explained so much to me that I've wondered about for so long. Um, this question has to do with whether or not the tests that you've mentioned or any other tests can help us um, figure out um, what optimal levels uh, of carnitine dose are for heart function, uh, which has been affected in my case and has also responded either to the addition or subtraction of Carnitor and MCT oil and even um, Carnitor versus generics. What's your diagnosis? The diagnosis is um, diabetes and deafness with the 3243 mutation. Um, but I have had um, had autonomic symptoms that came on at the same time as the diabetes, and uh, I've recently had a 30-point drop in heart rate that has uh, left me pretty tired uh, that may or may not have been related to um, uh, stopping taking MCT oil and a lot of physiological and other stress uh, on my system. Okay. Well, um um, and, you know, and my blood blood sugar control is very very good. Okay, so um, the brain utilizes always prefers sugar as an energy source. If yes. It, sugar, it will go to fat and use it as an energy source. Yes. Muscles, including heart muscle, behave in a different way. Muscles need sugar and fat as primary energy sources, and if you deny uh, a muscle um, enough of one or the other, it will complain. And, and in the heart, it'll show up as cardiac muscle problems. What uh, Carnitor does is it helps facilitate um, the entry of fat into the mitochondrion where it can be broken down and used as an energy source. So if there, um, you know, if there is um, any sort of cardiomyopathy or cardiac muscle problem, it's good to make sure that um, your car carnitine levels are well in the normal range, just to make sure that that's not adding, contributing to the problem. Um, so, and, and that's, you know, it, you know, blood levels of carnitine are not, don't tell you everything about carnitine levels in tissue, but it's all we've got. So mm. you simply want them to be um, well into the normal, if not at the upper end of the normal range. Uh, can I ask a uh, related question? Um, the, um, I'm wondering if there are other tests that might be useful, such as uh, an MRS test to check carnitine levels in the heart and also whether um, other cofactors that may or may not be uh, useful uh, to help carnitine do its job, such as choline, or even uh, a different type of carnitine that the heart might prefer um, might be options. 
Well, it's a good point. I, I don't know how to measure carnitine levels in vivo, that is, inside the working cell. Mm. Um, so I don't know that, uh, I mean, MRS can look at certain chemicals, but I don't know whether that's been applied to carnitine levels in cells. The carnitine level may not be high enough to pick up uh, by that modality. In terms of using alternative forms, um, I've always found that L-carnitine or levocarnitine is the most biologically available. Um, and um, I've, I've never had a problem in... in um, patients getting it in, whether it's IV or oral. So I, I would, um, I would generally push that. I'm sorry, you would what? I, w I would use that. Use levocarnitine or. L That's what we've been using, but um, we've run across material that suggests um, the body absorbs it more efficiently um, with sufficient or extra choline, and also I think Jero has been marketing. Uh, a different form of carnitine um, that uh, they say and some research papers also suggest um, are preferred by the heart. I guess I haven't seen those, so I, I Okay. Interesting. All right, thank you. And uh, we'll take that one last question who was asking at the same yes. time. And Go ahead. Uh, Dr. Corson, um, I, I kind of have a question about a child. I have two children. One is uh, confirmed uh, arginine acid aciduria, um, and the other one is not but has one mutation. That child um, also has a suspected mitochondrial disorder. I guess my question is what tests in a emergency room type situation should I have ordered because when um, we had an issue where he was um, very hypotensive, falling asleep, slurring his speech, brought him to the ER, you know, they really didn't know what to do, you know, but the things like amino acids, the urine and, and the plasma, you know, obviously you don't get those right away. So I, I really don't know how to help him in that type of of situation because when I get the, you know, results back, you know, later it says he has low bun, um, um, high albumin, and, you know, a bunch of different things like elevated sutrolene and proline and things like that. But I don't know what tests that I guess could be immediately ordered would be beneficial. Are you talking about um, tests for the child that's diagnosed or tests? This is the one that's undiagnosed. Right now we're in the process of getting um, – I guess the whole mitochondrial genome test for, tested for him because he has the one mutation. It says that he's just a, a carrier, but he's the more sicker of my two children, so something is off there. We're not, so we're not, but we're not concerned about his having arginosuccinic aciduria, correct? We don't, I, I, I'm not 100% sure that he doesn't because of the fact that his brother has it. The only thing is that, they, that when we had the ASL gene tested, they only found the one mutation. They didn't find a second mutation. Oh, so, I don't know. And your son who has a diagnosis has two confirmed mutations? Yes. All right. So, it, it, well, that would suggest that if they can find the other mutation in, the, in him, it suggests that he is almost certainly just a carrier for arginosuccinic aciduria and not symptom and, and carriers for that disorder are not symptomatic. Right. So correct to look for another cause. Right. But he's just incidentally a carrier for that. Okay. So then, but I, you know, I, there's obviously something else going 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 wrong because of all of his 
you know, uh, bad amino acids and, and things like that. Some, something's not right. So I guess, I guess the question is, is, you know, when, when you're in an emergency, emergent situation like that, I don't know what to, to even ask for at the ER to be looking for, you know, besides for, you know, the elevated ammonia level. Um, has, uh, when he is acutely sick, has the ammonia level been drawn? Yes. And it's been normal? Well, the last time they said it was normal, but then I've talked to other people that said sometimes it'll raise later, like up to five hours later, because we've had tests where we've done extensive tests where his ammonia level was high, and we didn't even think he was sick at the time, just randomly. Right. I guess um, if, if your child is symptomatic, urea cycle disorder, the, the symptoms come from the elevated ammonia. Okay. So um, if your child is very symptomatic and very lethargic and it's a normal ammonia, I, um, it's really hard for me to blame that on the arginine succinic acid. Right. And I would look for something else. Okay. Happening, which is good. Okay. All right. Dr. Dr. Corson, you've been such a, a great help, and I, I feel like we could um, ask questions all day. I think that probably everyone feels that way, but the the most valuable part of this is just breaking down what the different values for routine labs are so that it helps parents and patients and families understand them better and taking the time for you to volunteer to do this we all are so appreciative um, so thank you for this and for all that you do to educate others about mitochondrial disease and for what you do for your patients please join me in thanking Dr. Corson Oh, you're very welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Corson. I hope everyone has a super weekend. And uh, please join us at one of our Friday support groups uh, every Friday at noon Eastern Time, 9 a.m. Pacific Time. Same phone number as you used today. You're welcome to join the call. We'll be running a support group for patients, parents, families, and um, family members. So uh, it's a great way to just informally ask questions at that time also. So, Dr. Corson, thank you again. I hope you have a wonderful weekend. And uh, everyone have a great weekend. Look forward to talking with you again soon. Thank you. Thanks, Christy. All right. Bye.